Triathlon Show. We have that time. Up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, just like we did a few weeks ago back in episode 306 on workout fueling, I interview not one but three top level coaches. They are Frank Jacobsen, Val Burke, and Ryan Bolton. And the topic that we discuss today is on preparing for the World Championships in Kona. And, uh, well, big caveat on that one. I'll get back to that in just a second. But as for the format of the episode, uh, back in, as, just as in episode 306, each of the coaches will answer the same questions. So the idea would be that you can get uh, a notion of the commonalities and the nuances and differences in thinking around how best to prepare for racing in the World Championships in Ironman on the big island. At the end of the episode, I will also give you some of my personal thoughts uh, on this uh, to complement what Frank and Val and Ryan will have or have already been saying. So, as you know probably by now, uh, Kona is uh, was scheduled for February, but then was uh, moved to St. George and postponed as well. So, the next uh, Ironman World Championships will be in St. George, and then maybe we'll be back in Kona in October of, of 2022. So, there is quite a bit of time until that. Uh, that being said, that was not the case when I conducted these interviews. We, to, we were still preparing for a February uh, Ironman on Kona, so I thought that I'd just get this episode out there now and it will be evergreen content so whenever we are uh, preparing to go back to the big island uh, you can listen to this and re-listen to it and uh, get some good advice that will be applicable then just as it would be now if we were preparing for Kona. Some of the tips are also more general and we actually I have a question about that what if what if the world championships are not in Kona what what should you do then so so you will get definitely get some good tips uh, regardless of where the next world championships uh, are well, which will be St. George. But before we get into the interviews, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration. Precision Hydration creates electrolyte products that you can match to how you sweat and fueling products that make it easy to hit your numbers with 30 grams of carbohydrates per serving and a great relatively neutral taste. They also provide a fantastic amount of information on their blog, in their newsletter and in interviews that I've done on this podcast with founder Andy Blow that you can just search for on scientificdraftland.com and you'll find them. We've talked about things like how to fuel and hydrate to optimize performance in long races uh, and in hot or humid conditions how to avoid cramping, how much energy to consume, and much, much more. And Precision Hydration have free tools on their websites, like their online sweat test, their quick carb calculator, and you can even book a free one-on-one consultation with an expert from the team to get help with your hydration and nutrition strategy. You can use the promo code show 15 to get 15% off your first order on precisionhydration.com. And thank you to Senate. The Senate Indoor Swim Trainer is a swim training tool that you can use at home, allowing you to improve your technique, work on power and stamina, and save time and stay consistent. It is a fantastic way to work on swim-specific core activation as the instability element of the bench forces you to stabilize your core and it helps you work on a high elbow catch as the height of the swim bench is perfectly designed for forcing you to keep that elbow up. You can get tips and specific workouts to use on the trainer on the Senate social media channels like YouTube and Instagram. 
The Senate Tune Trainer is very affordable and even more so with a 20% discount code that you can get on senatetunetrainer.com forward slash TTS. And if this investment helps you get more consist- consistent with your swim training, then it might just be one of the best investments you can make as a triathlete. Now, without any further ado, let's get into interview number one with coach Frank Jakobsen. So with me now to discuss uh, Kona preparation is uh, Frank Jakobsen. Frank, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on the world's yeah, best think... triathlon podcast. <laughs> oh, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> it makes me glad to hear you say that. Well, uh, I think that you're somebody who will have a lot of a great, uh, great value to contribute with when it comes to talking about preparing for Kona. So let's just start with uh, the first questions, and uh, that is, what, if anything, should athletes do differently when they are preparing for going to Kona to race compared to any uh, regular Ironman or full-distance event? Um, I, I'll allow myself to put Kona in a, in a category uh, where there are some other races, but not a lot of them, and that would be uh, somewhere you are probably traveling far, and then uh, a place that is probably more uh, warm and more humid uh, and with actually more intense sun uh, radiation than uh, than where you normally live and train and are. Uh, that doesn't go for everybody. You know, somebody coming from uh, Malaysia or Singapore going to Kona uh, or even Thailand or like that would uh, would have a different uh, approach to it. So the, my answers will be from that point, that you, that's not your normal environment. And my, my answers will be, in let's say, in that category, um, if that's okay. Yep, um, perfect. Um, well, I... I, yeah, you send me the question. I, I have to say I, I'm a little bit running into this podcast a little bit. So it, it'll be a little bit from the hip, but then, of course, a lot of experience from working over, over a decade with Craig and, uh, and also other uh, good athletes racing their age groupers and pros. Um, so a little bit some of the things that we would look at and like that. I, I had the pleasure of working on some things where we worked with really sophisticated uh, let's say uh, uh, techniques like swallowing uh, temperature pills and measuring after in different intensities and of course uh, using proper equipment for sweat testing and stuff like that so so it's a little bit in the field and then also really uh, talking to very clever people on, on different topics and then using very good equipment so it's a crossover of these things a little bit um, and, and in no specific order, I would say one point, um, if, if that made sense. So in, in one point, uh, your has to do with sweating. Uh, uh, I know that you work with the precision hydration, which for me is one of the gold standards of testing it. New things are out where you, you take something and send somewhere and so forth. Uh, and it seems like it's working fine. So what do you want to do about your sweat and why is it important? So you want to find out what is your sodium content per liter of sweat. And that can be done uh, in different ways today. And then you want to find out what is your sweat rate, meaning how much liquid in sweat do you lose per hour of uh, of the race. Uh, the first one, you probably need some help to get a good number, a precise number. And sodium in, uh, content in the sweat can be anything from 
from 250, 300 milligrams per liter of sweat all the way up to 2000. Now, if you have a low, then you're just really lucky because that will help you when you're racing in Kona. So congratulations. If you have 2000, you have a problem. It's not so easy. And, and if you do not know that and race in Kona, you will, you will run into some degree of problems because of that. So t- get it tested somehow. And then, then uh, yeah, five hundred or less. Happy birthday! Uh, up to a thousand, uh, up to fifteen hundred. Workable from fifteen hundred to two thousand. Pay close attention. That would be my uh, my note on that. The other one of how much you're actually sweating would be that uh, my first point on that is get it done. And that means that during the summer, if you have the chance, if you're going, I'm in Spain in Mallorca, and we just had a heat wave here, and I was lucky to have Jesper and Sara down here that I worked with, and we tested there because we had days with 70 80% of uh, humidity and 35 We had like what we would say, this is corner conditions. Okay, today on the long ride, let's measure how much we are losing, you know. And then we did that, you know. So uh, get it done and ride it down. If you're on a holiday somewhere hot and you actually bring your bike, then then try to to get the things done. Of course, when you're a little more fit like that, you sweat a little less, but it's not really. And then, of course, what clothes do you have on and, and humidity? So what you want to do is you want to write down when you're testing what is the general temperature, what what day it is. Is it June in, in Spain? Okay, the sun is, is not as strong as in Kona, but close to... Um, what is the temperature? What is the humidity? And what is my intensity during these, this five hour ride? Cause the higher intensity, the more you sweat. So that's what you want to note down. And then you want to go on a weight before and after and measure your weight. You want to write down how much did you drink? And then of course you need to also measure what did you eat in grams and how, how much did you lose in grams going to toilet, both the, the easy toilet and the more heavy toilet, if I can say like that. So, did, yeah. well, did, so that that's on the sweating part, um, and, and I, that, I think just ju- yeah. just one thing about uh, measuring how much you drink. An easy way to do that because uh, in in some situations I've seen that athletes try to estimate like okay, this was one half a bottle or one third of a bottle. Just weigh all your bottles filled before the ride and yeah. weigh them after, and then you can get a more accurate uh, assessment of how much you drank. Yeah. Yeah, and it is, I mean, everybody, nobody leaves their phone today because without it, we would die. So you have a place to write down, you know, if you go out with two times uh, 0.7 and then you are, the thing is that make sure you drink it to the end. And then if you fill on during the the ride, then fill fill it all the way up or at least see, okay, I bought a half liter of water. I will put that on. Okay. And then you write down and like that. So you got to be a little bit precise. And then when you come back, if you are, Two kilos lighter, that means that you you underhydrated by two liters. And that's the whole point, is to find out that. And if you're about the same weight, uh, then you're like, oh, this was good. I was riding this and this intensity, this many hours and like this. So it looks like per hour I'm okay if I get this amount of, of uh, hydration. You know? So it, it, it doesn't have to be on the spot, but you have to get a sense of it when you go to Kona, in my opinion. That's the point. Yes. So how how much would you aim for? Is there a level of dehydration that is okay if it's 1% or 2% or do you really want to shoot for on the bike at least almost uh, replenishing all the fluid that you lose through sweating? 
No, I would for sure get into T2, replenishing all my sodium and all my liquid. That's that's a that's a given because that's the time when you can do it. It's much harder on the run to keep mm-hmm. doing, and you don't need to. I mean, the last 10k you can or 5k or whatever. It depends who you are and how sensitive you are to these things. Because the last 10k is anyway your brain running the show, so you just need to keep your brain calm. So, and that's done by drinking enough. If you start to feel that I don't have enough water, it's a thought, you know, and then you the rails they start going off you know so for sure hitting t2 you want to be in balance that's for sure okay yeah uh and uh then other than the sweating the sweat rate and uh, sodium concentration are there any other things when it comes to preparing for kona that you would highlight as a prolonged thing of the, the the sweat you have an ability to sweat also now the ability to sweat can be a little bit adjusted by actually training. Uh, one of the first times we went to Kona, we actually trained in a zoo uh, with with with. Uh, they had a kind of tropical uh, landscape. They, it was a closed area, and the humidity was high, and the temperature was high, and they had all kinds of animals. So the athlete was actually sitting we we got a deal with the the copenhagen zoo because we were in copenhagen and it was just september it's just dry air normally and like that so like this is not going to prepare you know so we went to the zoo and and got access three times a week to sit on a train and do some race specific things but they're sitting there and biking and people were walking around and then looking and they had to put up a sign saying who's training here and for what and like this but so what happens when you are in a very humid place is that your sweat is actually running off you. And when the sweat is just dripping off you, it's not having a cooling effect really anymore because the cooling effect is from the fact of sweat coming to the surface and evaporating. And that, that cools the skin where the blood cools and goes back to the core temperature a little less hot uh, than this. So, so you want by doing that and sweating a lot, you are, the holes that you're sweating, sweat holes, I don't know if they're called that, they can they expand as you're sweating, and then when you stop sweating, they actually close again. So by sweating a lot in training, they expand the elasticity, I don't know how you say it in English. Elasticity. Yeah, so they, they go a little bit bigger, and that means you can sweat more, and that means you can cool more. It's not a lot, but it's actually a thing to look at. So you can also do it home if you, some we have done sometimes with the, with the dryer, you know, the, the, and you put five uh, wet towels into the dryer and let the air get straight into a, a small room, you know, and you sit there and it, the humidity goes up and you, you bike for one hour and, and you train your, your sweat ability by doing that. That's, uh, that's the final thing to look at. So that was advice number three. Number one, sodium. Two, know your sweat rate. Three, train it um, yeah. on that topic. And, and and one more follow up uh, yeah. on on the run. If we have replenished uh, sodium and fluid completely into T two, yeah. What do you think on the run is a reasonable degree of replenishment? Well, a lot of people are saying that as soon as you lose more than two percent of your hydration and like that, I I I'm, I like scientists. Uh, some of the things, if you if you hear them from someone and like that, test it. I mean, get out on a hot day after a long ride and run. Uh, go on, check if you have, if you unbalance liquid and sodium wise, and then do like one and a half hour run. Just do it one time and see how you feel for the first one and a half hour at least, you know. And how much are you drinking? And then again, check how much am I now going in minus, you know. 
And if you have if you have had in normal races problems that you know you start to your muscles get very stiff and you start to actually be dizzy and and stuff like that, well, maybe you should drink more. You know, it's we want to go a little bit down because it's really hard for the stomach to take all this that we need on Ironman distance. But you you should go in training and test these things a little bit on yourself. Some people can go lower than us, and then of course we have this from the cycling world where they are riding and then until the last climb, they actually try to lose as much liquid as possible. So they are three kilos lighter going up the last mountain. But hey, we are looking at guys with 5% body fat and we are looking at like they, they go so fast. So they, they go maximum for 20 minutes or something. You have a marathon in front of you that takes for the most people in, in corner from 245 up. So it's uh, I would just keep hydrating and stay, you know. What we see most in Kona is that it's it's not because they're overhydrated at the end, you know, it's because they've gone too hard and stuff like that. So, so I would yeah. I would I wouldn't start to to fiddle with that. Well, I want to be so and so underhydrated because then I'm this and this light. Then you're really out. Then you have to be very very smart and very very clever to do that. I think uh, I think ninety nine percent don't even go there. You know, just yeah, just, and there's th- there's not a lot of margin for error there if no, you get no. your numbers even slightly no. wrong so i would just stay until kilometer 30 32 i would just try to get there in balance you know and then the rest of it is just willpower and like that then 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 from there you can wing it a little bit you know but uh, until mm-hmm. kilometer 30 on the run i would just really make sure i get it get it right yeah what are some common mistakes that you see people do uh, or hear about people do that uh, should be avoided uh, in preparing for Kona? Um, I think I think uh, one of the things that you, most people who go to Kona have to deal with is time difference, uh, and and uh, in general, the, the the general rule is that you can you can live with one hour per day you arrive before race. So if if you come from with seven hours different, you have to come seven days before, 10 hours, 10 days before, and like that. That is a good general rule. Then you can twist it a little bit. And there, I think some people, they go wrong. So first of all, when they fly, they, they you have to stay hydrated when you fly, which is difficult because body is already retaining some liquid when you're flying, but you still have to stay hydrated. That will help you a lot. When you get to the place, I would recommend that you try a little bit to stay in your zone, meaning that Unfortunately, Europeans are 12 hours off, so it's really difficult. So one thing you can do when you're there is to to really get into the rhythm with meals and like that. Avoid your phone and your, well, the, the general rule about sleep, but try really to apply it, that don't look at your iPad or phone or like that. Try to to make sure you get into some kind of rhythm and you really have to take care of it. You know, don't drink coffee late and like that before you go to bed. So, And just relax about it. Pay attention that the first days you are there, you will feel awkward. You're just 12 hours altering your body and your whole rhythm and like that. And some people, they start to be nervous about feeling strange. Well, what did you expect? I would say to them, you know, just go easy. It's going to change, you know, over the days. So bottom line is some people, they make the mistake because they want to stay over there and travel after. So they come very late to the race. And that that's difficult, I would say. I would I would try to get there in time and then maybe even go around on the island a little bit without spending too much energy. But that that's one uh, that's one mistake coming in too late uh, over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Is there anything that uh, is important to know about or prepare for regarding the, the specifics of the race course, whether it be swimming, biking, and running? I would say that this what I what I've seen people a little bit uh, not anticipate. So Kona is the world championship. That means when you arrive there, you ha- might have a sense that I'm really Superman. You know. The problem is it's full of supermens and superwomen there. You know, they, they, everybody qualified more or less in a, in a strong way. So that, that means that the swim is much more competitive than, uh, than a normal Ironman race. In a normal Ironman race, you, you find people having some to fight a little bit for four or 500 meters. Then the things settle down, it stretches out and like that. And of course, with rolling starts, it's different and like that. I don't know how they're going to do in Kona now, uh, hopefully in February when, when it's going to be. But I, I, for me, I find it fascinating with the mass start. So I hope they keep it now. They separate into women and men the recent years, which helps. But it's still a mass start, especially the men. It's a lot and it's very competitive. So you have to anticipate that it's, uh, it's pretty aggressive sometimes. Uh, and if you're there and you're just happy about you qualified for there, then that's another point is that be have some sense of why you are there. Are you there to try to go top 10 or even top five okay that's a whole different ball game but if you're there to experience the race by racing it and happy to have qualified and you know that listen i'm going to be number 50 in my age group well you know like so if you're number 60 or number 40 what does it matter try to have a good experience and in that means be careful on the on the swim if you if you go to the middle of the male front row and start your swim you better be a really, really good swimmer because there's a lot of good swimmers there. So, so you, you're going to be fighting for sometimes all the way to the first turn buoy, and that's like 1.8 kilometers out in the water. You know, that, 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 that's not. Some people get really surprised how aggressive and how long time you are really fighting for position in in corner in the swim. Um, mm. Then, then I would say also on the swim that it's a, it's a, it's a non wetsuit, and when we get and it's October now. It's even worse it's going to be February. So a lot of Europeans, a lot of Northern Hemisphere people will really have a difficulty in swimming open water. So you, you've got to pay attention to that. It's a non-wetsuit, so it's a little bit harder. So do some long swims uh, so that you, you really can do the full distance without the last, let's say, 15 minutes of the swim starts to give you trouble on, on your endurance and like that. So it's a non-wetsuit. It's it's kind of really open water. It's not crazy, but it's 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 a moving ocean. So pay attention attention to your endurance on the swim. Uh, I would say that would be a mistake not to do it. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, Is there anything specific about the bike or the run course that you want to to mention? Um, on the bike, it's not a difficult bike course. It's actually a very easy bike course in that way. So I would say that be sure you can hold your arrow position because the headwinds are ba- normally a little bit going out uh, after an hour on the bike you know, or half an hour, for yeah, 45 minutes, you start to have some headwinds. They will disappear again normally. Then when you get out to the climb to Harvey, that's in a headwind. So what most people they do when they get to the heavy climb is of course they climb it like you want to climb sitting up but you're sitting up in a headwind so i would i would try to to be sure that you have a good gearing and that you can actually sit in arrow position and, and climb and then when you're going home uh, the last you can easily have the last 30 to 40k so a steady irritating headwind so 
that means that the last part of the 180k you should be able to hold your arrow position and uh, that that's something to pay attention to in your training for sure train your body have a position that you think you can hold and you train to it and you train your muscles and the whole system to do that that would help you and if you don't that would be a mistake uh, yeah and finally uh, if uh, as you say uh, Kona is uh, looking like it will happen in February now or that's at least <laughs> the latest news but yeah. Uh, yeah. we'll of course have to see and there has been some speculation which led me to to write this question that what if uh, the Ironman World Championships were moved to some other location do you think there's anything that people should think about just because we don't know anything about the course because we don't know where it would be but we have a hypothetical Ironman World Championship at any given location but just because it's the World Championship other than the things you already mentioned with a competitive field competitive swim start and so on is there anything to think about just with the fact that it is a World Championship event? To, I really think the enjoyment part. I mean, I qualify. I worked with a lot of athletes qualifying to Kona, and and every time I take the talk after they have qualified and say, "What do you want? I mean, what is it you're going there for?" And and sometimes they, being a woman or a, a man going there, if they even have family and like that, if you are forty five age group and like that, are you going there to compete seriously, or are you going there to race and enjoy that you have qualified for this it's different and if you're not going there to compete for a position and and i would even say a position pretty high up just just train you know like if you qualify in july or like just you know, just give your family a rest from this focus they probably need it and give yourself a rest and just train so that you get over there fit to have a good time and go there for that purpose you know like don't be when you get there it's actually you look and you just see fit people everywhere and you get this so just be be honest with yourself why you're going there are you happy you qualified i'm going to race corner then then try to shift the mindset you're going to compete there then you have to even work harder in my opinion you know to really focus so decide that that that's wherever it is the world championship that's a decision to make when you go there to race you know Look at the look at the pace of the people. Look at those people who are qualifying. Look at those who go top five, top ten. Are are you one of those? Seriously? Yeah. Okay. Good. Do it. Work for it. Do get the things right. If you're not, then let that go and just enjoy the process of looking forward to going to the world championship. Maybe for the first time in your life, and maybe for the last time. You know, who knows? I know many who said this is my dream, and when they've done it, they're like, that was nice. You know, now I'm moving on to other things. You know, so that that's a little bit of thought process. I think that you should do when you're going to the world championship yeah no that's that's great advice all right that, that's everything that i had uh, thank you so much frank it was uh, a pleasure to have you on as always good thank you next we'll hear from val burke so val burke a coach and physiologist from peak endurance wanaka new zealand is here and uh, we're going to discuss Kona preparation with you, Val. Uh, how are you doing, first of all? We're doing really well, thanks. Um, disappointed about the postponement, but hopefully we'll get there in February. Yeah, yeah, and we'll see when, when this episode airs. Uh, it will probably be around about the time that at least some people are starting to think seriously about preparations anyway. 
so the first thing that I want to ask you about, and uh, just to make this clear, this this is specifically for amateur athletes that we're discussing today. So what, if anything, should amateur athletes do differently when preparing for uh, racing in Kona compared to any regular Ironman or full distance event? I think the environment, they definitely need to take into um, account the environment. And it really depends where they're coming from around the world as to how what they need to be thinking about. But obviously, just um, the perception of everyone has a different perception. So they'll hear a lot of different things from a lot of different people um, and just need to put it into their filter. Um, for the environment, I either for professional athletes or for amateurs, I actually do some acclimation or some acclimatization um, and we don't do any altitude training. So um, like I say, even even if it's an age group or not a pro, we still will do some acclimation um, type of work to um, get prepared for the environment. Uh, the course, obviously, get to know the course. And I really think athletes need to empower themselves regarding the course and not expect their coach to spoon feed them details. So they need to really find out what the course is all about and get mentally prepared for the, you know, the fact that it's going to be hilly environment's going to be hot. We know that windy. Um, if you come from some parts of the world, it's going to be very windy and be very um, disruptive that way. If you come from a place like New Zealand or the roaring forties, you might not find it's that windy at all, but either way you need to know how to ride in the wind and not get broken. Um, ocean swim, uh, taste salt water, uh, how to swim in swells, how to get used to swimming with a lot of people around you. Um, I have some perceptions from the years that I've been coaching is that some people will finish the Ironman swim and they'll say they've been in the washing machine the whole time. And other people in the same race will say that they had clear water. So a lot of it is what's going to happen on the day, but you just have to be mentally prepared for everything. Um, and the other thing I found over years and years of coaching is that those that are the best planners, they often reach their potential. So you need to plan every single detail, including breaking the course down into small chunks and not getting overwhelmed by the course. Yeah, no, those, those are great tips. Uh, we'll get on to the, the heat acclimation a bit later, I think. But regarding the, uh, the course, uh, do you think that well, you mentioned the ocean swim, of course, uh, the bike course, hilly and windy. Uh, is is the is there a difference in how important it is to prepare for the bike, for example, versus the run? Or do you think it's also really important to know the run course really well? What, what's your take on that? I think you need to look at everything. Um, the bike does get the most attention. And from the athletes that I've debriefed after they're racing, um, the bike does seem to be the windiness that hilliness, um, the heat, and you're just out there for a lot more time. So a lot of people talk about it a bit more, but the run is where it all comes apart. If you don't get the bike right, don't get the nutrition right, it often comes down to the run overheating and people can just bleed time on the run. So I think you have to look at everything. And the other thing is don't get over people's perception is very different. So someone will, you know, come back, I'll have three people in the Ironman race, and someone's perception was it was just so hot. And they lost two hours compared to their qualifying time. Whereas I'll have another person, I've even had people who've PB'd 
um, which is very unusual, but I have had people have good races there. Um, some people talk about the bike as being very, very windy. Other people, if you're from the Roaring Forties and used to it, Western Australia, etc., you might find that actually what you notice about the bike is the pavement's very smooth, but it really depends where you come from. So I think you just have to go in with the best attitude, the best planning, and look at all three in detail, and then just plan how you want it to um, unfold for you. Right, yeah. So, so to sum up... Uh, heat acclimation, uh, course familiarization, and uh, perception or attitude, uh, expectations. Those, those are the main main things, really, that uh, that you really need to consider, in particular for Kona. Yeah, I think the people that come out of there and reach their potential, they've prepared very well. They, they've heard about it. They've put it into their own um, heads, and they do know the course fairly well, um, but they're not afraid of it. So you respect the course, but don't fear the course. Yeah. What are some common mistakes that that you see happen and that you sh- that people should avoid? Um, probably the biggest one is it being a world championships and people getting overwhelmed by the enormity of it and changing their training leading into it. So they might have a good recipe that's worked for them, But when they start approaching Kona, they might increase their volume a lot more than what they can um, handle. So they uh, might end up being overtrained by the time they get there and just having a a very, very poor race. Pacing, not being uh, being afraid to let go of the fact that in the run, they're probably not going to run. They're not going to run the pace that they normally would run in a temperate race. So being able to judge how it feels for them and let go of some of that pacing. Um, and if you don't do that, that's often when you overheat and your run basically ends early. So um, another mistake, I suppose it's not a mistake, it's just a refinement. When you talk about acclimation, people will get to Hawaii and they'll think that in order to acclimatize, that they need to do all their sessions in the heat of the day, um, the week or two before the race. And often that's another stress on top of their training stress. So then they don't taper that well into the race. So making sure that when you are looking at acclimation or acclimatization, that you're not trying to, um, you're not trying to do it right leading into the race. And the fact is you don't need to be doing a five hour ride in the heat of the day to acclimate or acclimatize. You actually can do, you know, 30 to 45 minutes at a, a high body temperature and you'll get all you need. So just managing the time when you're there and the the month preceding it and how you're going to get adjust to the heat. Yeah, perfect. So let's go into that uh, acclimatization heat training. Uh, how do you, uh, how do you plan that for, for your athletes going to Kona? A lot of it depends on what they've got around them. So we now have some pretty good information that if they are in a, you know, if they're in a, a warm place, they might just do some training in the middle of the day. But I would always do the shorter training and usually it'd be running because biking, you, you don't heat the core quite as much. So if they if someone's coming from a warm environment, um, we try and get about minimum six. But if we can get 10 to 14 workouts or sessions where we get their core temperature up, that works very well. So um, we can do that if they come from a hot environment. If you come from a temperate or a cool environment, you can set your bathroom up 
to be a bit of a heat chamber where you look at a bit of humidity by, say, running a bath or the shower, putting a heater in there, closing the door and having it at about 30 degrees with a bit of humidity and just riding on the trainer. Um, you, you wouldn't want to hammer yourself. You'd just start by riding nice, comfy pace and let the heat um, do its thing. And that those sessions would on the bike would only need to be about an hour to an hour and a quarter. Um, other people will, if they have access to a treadmill and a hot room, they might heat up the room or they might run a little bit overdressed. Um, and the other one we do, which is a lot easier and the results are really good, is by having people either run or bike and get warmish, but then go into what we call a hot bath. You can do hot bath or sauna, but the bath seems to work a little bit better and it doesn't make you quite as fatigued. So you might finish your <clears throat> finish your 45 minute to an hour run and immediately you go into a bath or a hot tub that's about 40 degrees Celsius, 20 minutes um, up to your chin, and then about another 30 to 40 minutes um, with the water at about your nipple line and getting quite hot that way. And the effects are really quite good with the hot baths. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. And with the training, with, with those rides or runs, do you have a specific heart rate percentage of max that you that you would recommend athletes get up to that would be an indication of their core temperature, assuming that most people don't have access to actually measuring their core temperature? Yeah, it's it's a very um it's a fine science, but you're going to have to do a bit of trial and error. So I've had pretty good success um, looking at uh, E2, which is uh, your aerobic to high aerobic zone. So even close to your Ironman pace, um, if you're running or bike wise, you're, the power that you might think that you're going to do your Ironman at, which I call E2 um, or fairly high aerobic. And that seems to work quite well. I have tried the odd interval session, and for most people, it's too much. And if you don't get your core temperature up, um, the it's you'll still get some benefit, but you might not get as good a benefit as if you can just work slightly hard, somewhat hard, if you're looking at a uh, an RPE scale. Um, and you should feel hot and sweaty, but if you get a little bit dizzy, that's when usually you pull the pin. Um, and then you'll find after the sessions, you'll probably sweat for quite a, you know, maybe 30 minutes after or feel like you continue to be hot and sweaty. And as long as you aren't dizzy, that's actually fine as well. It, it means your core temperature will be high enough. Mm. So, so would you then, so you would prescribe the, the workout on the bike, for example, by power rather, but by heart rate and, and have it be around that Ironman power, for example? Yes. And in the initial sessions, because everyone responds differently. So I had a fellow the other day that had a, a bad response to a ride that normally my athletes handle quite well. So we look at heart rate um, as well. And your heart rate initially for the first five to six sessions will be higher than normal for that power or for that pace. But what you should find is when, when you complete about six to 10 sessions, you'll then notice for the similar temperature uh, that your heart rate will drop down and be more similar to what that power or pace would normally be in temperate conditions. And then you know you're getting acclimated or acclimatized. Yeah. And over what uh period would you do these let's say you have 10 sessions would you get them in over five weeks or three weeks before leaving for Kona or what is the 
time range we're talking about here? Um, you can vary it because we know that you could have, say, a two-week block and then maintain it into the race. But I tend, it's, it's hard to be motivated to do it. So I tend to bring it in about three to four weeks before the race um, and then maintain it after that. And it really does depend at what point people are heading over to Kona. Okay, yeah. Uh, do you have any logistical recommendations? And well, this actually uh, falls in nicely to talking about heading over to Kona, for example, regarding when is a good time to go there. And this might, of course, depend on things like times of an adjustment and time available, uh, vacation days and so on. What, what general logistical recommendations might you have? And it might be other things than, than when to travel and so on. Anything that you've, you've found over the years in coaching? Well, most of my athletes come from either Western Canada or New Zealand. So the time change isn't that severe to Kona. So the jet lag um, isn't as severe as it would be from Europe. So I can't really comment on that. But what I find, if someone had the time, money, and could do it, two weeks is really good because then you can get all your acclimation, or you call it acclimatization then because it's happening in the environment. You could get all of that done, get really good course familiarization, uh, ride, perhaps get there and ride your long ride. Um, if you did two and a half weeks, you could ride that last long ride two to two and a half weeks before. Um, so you could actually ride the full course. Um, and that would be ideal, but it's not always logistically possible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and final question. If we, for for some reason, don't get a Kona in February either, and uh, let's say the World Championships might be moved, that's something, a discussion that's been going on on Twitter, should it be moved, uh, and uh, maybe even be a rotating World Championships, or but it might just be that maybe it is moved for this year. This is just hypothetical, of course. <laughs> I have no inside information. But, but if we have a World Championship that is in another location than Kona, and uh, we don't know and anything in particular about the course, the environmental conditions or anything, we just know that, okay, it's an Ironman race, it's a world championship event. Is there anything in particular to consider just because it's an, a world championship event in itself that, that athletes do need to take into account regardless of where the race might happen? Um, you need to get quite creative with realizing where you are in your periodization phase, at what point it gets announced, and how you then need to, for example, do you fit in a recovery period or a mid-season break and then go back into it? Um, I think you'd really have to look at your periodization. The big thing would be not to get despondent because everyone's in the same boat. And I know uh, everyone reacts differently when there's a change, but we're just, the reality of, of life is that things are going to change and we just need to roll with it. Um, and then start over as far as look at the course, what you need to prepare, where it's going to be, and um, basically just use the same pieces that you would use for Kona and apply it to the different location if that were to be. Perfect. Thank you so much, Val. Uh, we'll have the links to all of your social media and website and everything in the show notes, as well as your previous, your full interview on that triathlon show. So thanks again for taking the time to uh, talk about Kona preparation. Thank you and good luck to everyone. And next uh, we have coach Ryan Bolton. I'm here with Ryan Bolton to discuss uh, Kona preparation. Welcome Ryan, how are you doing? Hey, great. Great to be here. 
Uh, it's uh, great to have you. Uh, this is uh, a topic that I know you'll be very well suited to answering uh, or to discuss with me, uh, preparing for Kona. And uh, now it has recently been postponed to February, but uh, we'll release this when the, when the time is right. And uh, and it's uh, it, th- there will be more world champions there at some point for sure. So it's, <laughs> it's evergreen content. <laughs> uh, so so let's get started with uh, the first question, which is simply, what are the things that that athletes should do differently when it comes to preparing for Kona compared to any other uh, iron distance or full distance race? Yeah, well, the unique thing about Kona um, is certainly the course and the conditions. Th- those two things are unlike any other uh, Ironman distance race. You have some comparable courses and or conditions like Lanzarote is a, a good example, but Kona is definitely unique. And, you know, it's funny because you just mentioned that Kona was changed from October to February. And the first thing that I do as a coach is I look at, okay, well, how is Kona different from a a climate standpoint in February than October? And it's actually very, very similar. So, um, you know, there's not there's not much of a difference there. But like I said, preparing the, the specificity of preparing for Kona and being ready for Kona. Um, really has to do with the course and the exposure of the course. Um, and then, of course, the conditions. So um, I, I, I would always highly suggest uh, athletes, and, and I have all of my athletes go through a very specific like heat acclimatization protocol. And whether that's, um, you know, training outside and, and exposing yourself to warm weather training outside and or doing some type of a protocol that, you know, includes a sauna um, you know, to, to get the body ready. And I mean, we could go into the science of that if you want to, but, um, I, I, it it can be pretty detailed, but I find it to be incredibly, uh, incredibly important for that race. Um, and then let's just, let's just, let's just go into the practicality of, of that. So so let's assume now that, well, let's take both of those options. If you have, if you live in a warm climate, what do you do? Do you do, and what do you do if you don't? Right, absolutely. If you live in a warm climate and you actually have access to, you know, warm temperatures. If you look at the studies, and interestingly, a lot of heat acclimatization studies, the most recent ones, are coming out of Scandinavia and specifically Norway, and um, you know, looking at how the body responds, what does the body do, what does it take the body to respond, but. I guess a couple major rules of thumb for if you're doing actual in climate, so in a warm weather place, it needs to be, and you're, I'm sorry, you're going to have to do the Celsius conversion for me here. Um, I can get out your calculator. <laughs> it needs yeah. to be, you know, it, uh, you need to expose yourself, say approximately five times a week, uh, one hour uh, at a time uh, for uh, 90 plus degrees uh, Fahrenheit, that is. So, it's not actually that much if you think about it. It's all about getting the core temperature 30, up. 32 degrees Celsius. Yeah, 32 degrees Celsius. So, um, you know, that's not, it's not super extreme. I mean, that is pretty warm. Um, it, it's not too bad. Like I said, what it's all about is getting the core temperature elevated for a certain amount of time. It seems to be if you do it for an hour at that 90 plus degrees, 32 plus degrees, um, for about five times a week. One big part of that, and I think that this is really important to point out, is uh, if you do do that, it's hard, you know, training in that type of heat certainly compromises quality. And the the thing that the studies have shown are that you can actually, um, you know, do aerobic work. It's just, you know, a, a normal, say, you know, hour aerobic run or um, bike and obviously a run, an hour aerobic run, it's easier to get the core temperature up. But uh, 
it doesn't have to be a hard workout. So what I would say is it, and that's where it's really tricky because athletes, especially triathletes, we have a tendency to like overdo it. So people are like, well, if I can get a lot out of an hour, then I'm going to get a, you know, a tremendous amount out of two hours. And, um, the problem with that mentality is you can cook yourself, you know, you can really fry yourself. And also if you do harder workouts in the warmer climates and you can, you can intersperse those in, but for the most part, you should keep it aerobic because those harder workouts, a, it compromises the quality of the hard workout to do it in the heat. And uh, B, um, it, it, it you know, fatigues you more. It definitely knocks you down more. So if it can be effective, which it can be, by doing the acclimatization uh, in a, um, you know, in aerobic work, then I always highly suggest athletes to do it that way. And uh, how many total sessions or total weeks of that five times? Yeah, that's a great question. And so you can go into the science of that too. So there's kind of like, you're trying to accomplish two things with heat acclimatization. You're supposed to, you're trying to, uh, you know, get your body used to uh, the heat and its physiological adaptations. The primary one being increasing, you know, blood plasma volume. So it, uh, it, you have more actual fluid in your system and it actually allows you, you know, to sweat, um, to cool yourself more properly. I mean, that's the acclimatization process and your body does that very quickly. Like, if you look at just a, a handful of sessions and your body will start responding very quickly by increasing blood plasma volume. Um, there's another thing, and this is what the research is about and kind of the second fold advantage is long-term heat acclimatization. If you do it correctly and don't cook yourself <laughs> um, can also have positive impacts on, on blood and blood values and like specifically red blood cell values. And, The way to look at that is if your blood plasma increases, the volume of your blood increases, physiologically, your body responds to that by saying, hey, you need to re you need to get your percentage of red blood cells, you know, at the same level as the plasma, you know, to, to balance it out. And so you actually that is EPO stimulation production, and you actually can get um, you know, an increase in red blood cells. And it's kind of like uh, they, they call it the poor man's altitude is just go, you know, go hang out in the heat and train. So that's more of a five, six, seven, eight week process. So if someone's trying to get those benefits, um, you would want to do it for the longer period of time. If you're just trying to get the blood plasma increases and the more efficiency in heat, you can do it in as little as three weeks, you know, five times a week for a few week period. So it's actually it, your, the body adapts very quickly. Yeah. And would you then, when you would taper for Kona, reduce the amount and do just some maintenance work in the heat? That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So yeah, you say like going into the week of the race, you do, you can back off that protocol. Um, inevitably, if you're just staying in Kona, which most people do the week before the race, you're going to be subject to the heat um, at least a little bit and everything. But, uh, but yeah, I would back off the protocol, uh, significantly because the, it, the body will hold that adaptation easily for that week. And you don't want to err on the side of, you know, being in the sun too much the week of the race to kind of cook you, especially when you're tapering. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so that was the heat side of things. Is there, is there anything else to add on that? Um, no, but, uh, yeah, I mean, oh, we, we still have the, if you live in the, exactly. If you live, if you live in, uh, if you live in England and, uh, you know, it's getting to be like, you know, 15 degrees Celsius on a daily basis or in October or 10 degrees or even colder and, or really in a lot of places in the world, um, you know, a good way to do it is using a sauna protocol. And it, there's some very, I guess I follow some really specific, uh, guidelines here too. 
um, in that you want to be in the sauna. Once again, I would say a three week period, four to five times a week, uh, 30 minutes. And, and, uh, and those 30 minutes need to be at 160. Once again, you're going to have to do a Celsius conversion, 160 degrees Fahrenheit to 180 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and uh, like I said, 30 minutes, you can build up to, I always say cumulatively, you want to get in those 30 minute sessions, even on day one. But, you know, sometimes people are like, well, I want to do 10 minutes, take a break, 10 minutes, take a break, and then 10 minutes because they can't handle 30 minutes straight. And you're, you'll notice, interestingly, and it's, it's almost kind of fun, especially if you're a bit, um, you know, uh, if, if you like to suffer a bit, which most triathletes do to build up to that 30 minutes. I mean, I would suggest building up to it because I don't want anyone to go in a sauna and pass out. But um. But, uh, you know, building up to that 30 minutes at 160 to 180 degrees Fahrenheit, um, like I said, four or five times a week for a three week period in the lead up uh, to Kona is a great way to acclimatize. Once again, the way that your body's adapting, what's happening physiologically is, um, you know, the, the blood plasma uh, increases like what we just talked about. But it's, it's your body uh, getting your core temperature going up and a de- dehydration factor happening. With both the outdoor and indoor protocols, I think it's important that during that period, you don't overhydrate, you don't, um, um, you know, you don't try to cool yourself, you actually stay hot. But then after the sessions, it's super important for you to rehydrate and to get uh, adequate electrolytes in. I always tell athletes if they can, especially in sauna protocols, is to, you know, weigh yourself before you walk into the sauna weigh yourself when you come out and, and drink uh, water and take in electrolytes um, until you get back to the weight that you were prior to getting into the sauna. Yeah. Would you usually pair the sauna with uh, finishing a workout before and then getting into the sauna if possible? Exactly. That's, that's, that's actually a, a common way to do it and, it. and it works really well that way. Sometimes it just works conveniently that way. Say someone's at a swim pool, they're at their gym and uh, they can do that. But um, I would have people do that with, uh, yeah, like you said, do a run first and do, do a bike first and then hop into the sauna and then do that full rehydration process. Um, I think one critical thing, or this is a question that I get from athletes often is, you know, hey, how about a steam room? Does that work? Or, you know, a hot tub, a jacuzzi, does that work? And it's it it does, but it takes a longer amount of time because the the actual heat of the sauna is a lot more extreme than say the heat of a steam room. Um, the steam room might feel as warm and everything, but from a stimulation standpoint, um, the sauna is the most bang for the buck, and uh, so it, that's the way to go if you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One sixty one or eighty Fahrenheit is seventy to eighty two degrees Celsius. So that's what we in Finland would call a Swedish sauna. Ah, yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. <laughs> we are we're used to slightly higher temperatures than that, actually. Oh, really? Well, yeah, you, yeah. yeah, you guys love that stuff. I mean, you, you guys are the yeah. uh, you guys are the kings of saunas, I think. So yeah. they're the world champions. Yes, exactly, world <laughs> champions. Yeah, I, I've seen one of those competitions on TV once, and man, unreal, just unreal. Yes, yeah, the, yeah. The, it's it's a bit crazy. <laughs> uh, all right, so so that's the heat training heat uh, yeah. uh acclimation then is there anything else on that or shall we move on from, uh, no. from that yeah you can course? move on from that yeah yeah okay so so then you mentioned the the course uh as the other uh, big thing to think about so so what is it that you should do when it comes to preparing for that right you know it kind of is, uh it's deceptively i mean it is hilly you know you're you're often going up or down preparing for the climbs, preparing for the downhills. But I think probably most importantly, and I'm talking specifically 
you know, about the bike course at this point, but, um, is, uh, is the wind. I mean, the wind is such a factor there. And I think a lot of people, uh, underestimate that and they'll get there and they'll get out on the queen K and it's almost shocking to them, you know, the crosswinds, the headwinds and being, uh, both technically ready for that, but mentally ready for that as well. And, and, and also ready from a race plan standpoint, because, you know, as you know, you're, you're going into a headwind, uh, really strong and you're going, um, you know, 15 kilometers an hour or something like that, but you're still, your power is still where it needs to be. And a lot of people will have a tendency, you know, to spike their power like too much. Um, and it, because of, because of the wind and just to like, you know, keep themselves moving or they feel like they're going too slowly and, uh, and then they'll cook themselves and everything. But the other thing about Kona is, you know, people where they push and, and finding the spots and being ready for the, the really challenging parts of the course. I think Kona is challenging because, um, you know, you have the climb to hobby and that's still before the halfway point. And a lot of people have, um, I guess what I would always tell people is to keep yourself in control there. You want, when you watch the pros race Kona, a lot of them, you can watch them really closely paying attention to their power right now or right there, because it's really easy to spike the power too much. You're still feeling fresh. You're still feeling pretty good. You know, and they do that. And I really think that, you know, the, the most significant and most challenging part of the course, and it's also where you often see a lot of the, the critical part of the bike race happening is, you know, after you descend um, out of Kona and then you're in the Kauai High area and then you're popping out of there. Um, that's where, that's where it starts to get real and having people make the descend, descend out of Harvey. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yep. yep. Totally. Yeah. Yep. That's where the race, like, you know, and then after that descent, um, cause that descent once again too. And, um, I mean, it's kind of a tricky descent depends on how the, the winds are blowing, but you know, people can spin a gear out there almost, you know, you, you can run a pretty big gear there and spin out and it's a good time to, uh, uh, get on top of nutrition, like, you know, that area there. But like I said, then once you get out of there, you know, you drop down and then you start climbing again. And oftentimes you get these really heavy crosswinds and just being ready for that part of the course. And then on, on the run course, the big thing is, is, you know, being ready for the heat and, and honestly being ready for, um, you know, the, the hills early on, and then the, the, the kind of loneliness of the queen K and the energy lab. I mean, you get out there and it's, there's something about that course that's unlike any other. I feel like that it's very, very lonely out in the, out in the lava fields, um, especially, you know, from mile, you know, 10 to really mile 20. I mean, that whole segment, that whole section there is a really challenging mental section. It's hot. It's incredibly exposed. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's, it's getting to be the really hard part of the race and you've just got these rollers out there, but there's something special about Kona and, and like that, uh, all of those factors combined that you have to be mentally tough and mentally prepared for that. Uh, cause a lot that's normally where you start going to dark places in an Ironman as it is. And, uh, Kona is completely set up, uh, to almost like, uh, take that exponential. Yeah. I, do you have any strategies that you, that you would recommend for actually working on that mental preparation for both the the bike course the winds and the and the run course the the loneliness of uh, of that course or a- anything in particular with, when it comes to the mental preparation yeah for sure i i mean on the bike i think you know if you can subject yourself to those types of conditions and i mean the run subjecting yourself um to those types of conditions too but really i think a lot of it is just visualization it's actually mental training it's actually um you know uh 
preparing psychologically. And I, I would say, you know, visually visualization, um, being ready for that and kind of knowing, um, that you are probably going to go through, you know, patches of doubt and, 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 uh, and, and tough, rough patches and everything, and almost like being ready for that, you know, mentally prepared for that and mentally tough for that. Almost, I, there's a benefit in knowing that it's going to happen, you know, because then when it does happen, you're like, well, I was ready for this. I knew it was going to be hard. I knew it was going to be challenging. And, uh, yeah, and I knew this wind was going to be annoyingly bad, or <laughs> I knew it was going to be incredibly hot and, uh, challenging. So I would say it's more of a mental prep than it is a physical one, aside from obvi- the obvious normal training and, you know, heat preparation. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, when it comes to the visualization, uh, a key thing about visualization just generally is preparing for different, uh, suboptimal scenarios as much as you can might want to prepare your perfect race day where everything goes perfectly. That's, that's unlikely to happen. So, so you need to prepare for, well, what do I do if the wind is really, really strong and I start to feel like, like it's throwing me off my bike or if, the heat is even hotter than I than I thought it would be, and I start to feel really crappy on the run. Like preparing for those sort of negative situations and how how you'll respond to them. Absolutely, that's a really good point because a lot of people when they visualize, they visualize the optimal situation, <laughs> and yep. uh, and that that's not the case. You need to be ready for you know the hard situations. I I also think um, one thing that I like to tell athletes, and really this is for any race, but definitely in Kona, is to expect the unexpected, and um, because if you you know, it, it, if, if something unexpected happens, which it will, and it does, um, you can let it roll off you pretty easily. Cause you're like, well, I, I knew that was going to happen. I knew that something was going to happen that I didn't know it was going to happen. So I always tell people expect the unexpected because then you're ready for it. Yeah. That makes total sense. Uh, now what about logistically? So things like when to travel, uh, time zone adjustments. Uh, are there any any things to consider when it comes to to those sorts of arrangements? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, you know, it depends on where you're coming from. I, you know, a lot of people get to Kona about a week out early. The further the time zone you're coming from, the the sooner you should come, as long as you're comfortable um, being away from home. I think a couple logistical things about Kona, and and this is actually. Uh, valid is making sure or finding out if wherever you're staying, whether it be a hotel um, or like a vacation rental has air conditioning, because a lot of people, they don't look at that. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden they show up at an Airbnb and, uh, and they don't have AC and they were expecting to have AC and then they're having a hard time. Like that seriously is a thing in Kona because a lot of places don't have air conditioning. And I've seen that happen before with athletes. They didn't realize that. Um, but yeah, uh, as far as, um, I mean, once again, there's a bunch of protocols that you can go through uh, regarding the travel and the jet lag and basically everyone in the world. No one is coming. I mean, there's very few locals and Kona is in the middle of nowhere. So almost everyone has to deal with some type of, you know, a jet lag issue. But uh, the best way to deal with jet lag is I, I always encourage people even before, you know, before you travel to start modifying your sleep, sleep schedule a little bit and as important and um once again, a lot of studies that have shown this as important as sleep schedule is your eating schedule. And that's one thing that's pretty easy to modify. Um, you know, you can start eating at the times in which uh, you would normally eat in Kona. And then once you get to Kona, getting on that eating schedule as quickly as possible or immediately. I even do it personally. I mean, just uh, I'm not even competing and I'll do 
the eating thing uh, sometimes a couple days before just so I can deal with the jet lag. But in addition to that, um, like even on the airplane and you, you know how that is, like you're on a, you're on a red eye flight and you know, they're feeding you and you look at your watch and you're like, well, in Kona, it's 2am right now. And they're feeding me dinner on this airplane right now. Don't eat because <laughs> it's, uh, it's, you wouldn't be eating at 2am in Kona and then try to, and even ask them to save it until, you know, whatever, what would be, you know, 6am or 7am or something Kona time so that you're eating breakfast at basically a normal time there. Hmm. Um, that's a really good way to help you like acclimatize to the time zone adjustment in the travel. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And, uh, Finally, are there any things to consider just ignoring the the environmental conditions, the course and everything, just because it's a world championship that might apply even if it was a different course? Like, let's say it gets postponed or actually moved, which I saw some speculation going on. Like, what, anything to consider or should you, in that regard, just treat it like any other race and not put anything special to it just because it's a world championship? Right. Well... I mean, it's kind of interesting because I would say I kind of go both directions here. If I would tell an athlete just to treat it like another race, Um, but there is something special about it because it is a world championship, regardless of the location, even if it weren't in Kona. I mean, the level of competition is so much higher. And I think the beauty of that is that, you know, most of the athletes that are in Kona are people that qualified and, you know, people that are highly competitive. And because of that, there's more uh, highly competitive people out on the course, which actually in my eyes makes it a funner race because you have more people around you that are at your ability level. Um, and you know, it, it almost makes it a funner race to do as a competitor in that regard. But I also, on the flip side of that, I can, I, I realize that some people, you know, they get really intimidated by that and, you know, and, and to those types of people, I would say, Hey, you know, it's just another race. All you have to do is get out there and do what you're capable of doing. And, you know, do what you did to get yourself there. And that's really common with a lot of world championship races. I mean, it's common with the Olympics. If, you know, an Olympian, if they do uh, what they did just to get themselves to that race, they'll normally have a successful race there. So, um, you know, if you can just kind of like keep it that simple and just execute on the day what you're capable of executing, then you'll have a good day. Yeah, perfect. Very sound advice. Uh, Thank you so much, Ryan. It was uh, great to chat with you again and I hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, you bet. And finally, here's my personal rapid-fire overview on Kona preparation. And uh, I do find myself agreeing with so much of what my guests said. So I'm really not going to answer all of the questions uh, in like they did in detail. I'm just going to mention a few additional considerations that are worth thinking about that I'm not. Sh- I think were maybe not mentioned, or at least not mentioned so much. Uh, I'm recording this several weeks after conducting the interview, so actually I may be repeating something that was said. But in that case, repetition is the mother of all knowledge, so it won't hurt to hear it again but uh, the first uh, consideration that uh, might not have been mentioned is to practice swimming in your swim skin even if that means swimming in a pool depending on where you live and open water swimming uh, probably not being an option uh, depending on the time of year and uh, making sure that you know whether to swim with your tri suit uh, rolled up or rolled down under the swim skin and uh, making sure that you can remove your swim skin quickly and all that jazz that is an important part of your preparation Uh, and uh, the other thing i want to mention in terms of mistakes to avoid i think one of the biggest is definitely getting sucked up in too aggressive pacing 
you're probably used to being front pack at least in your age group and now you might be mid pack or back of the pack so it feels really weird in that situation to not follow or not overtake people but that is where you will just have to have a really well thought out race plan that you believe in that you will stick to no matter what and even though there are hundreds or thousands of athletes out ahead of you on the road and you're not used to that you won't get sucked into other people's paces uh, because you have that plan that you believe in that you'll follow this kind of applies to any race of course or it does apply to any race but it is much more easily happened to make the mistake of uh, following pe- of too aggressive pacing plan at a world championship event as there are so many fast athletes there this point is of course also going to be true in other locations like in St. George or whatever the world championships might be held in the future so it's got nothing to do with the course but with the kind of field that will show up to a world championship event so there is there are some ways that you can practice restraint that you will maybe have to show here in terms of pacing uh, one way would be to swim bike or run with a group and uh, just practice letting the group go off even though you could go with them relatively easily have that ha- have a pre-planned pace uh, or pre-planned effort that you want to go at uh, whatever the workout might be and as soon as the the group goes faster than that practice just waving goodbye to them and continuing on your own Uh, in the pool of course you're not uh, waving goodbye so much as just uh, letting the gap open up and then catching up uh, with the next uh, uh, and in the next break between intervals but still practicing restraint in a group is a is a good thing to do in preparation for this or you could do something like go out and run a half marathon at your marathon or ironman marathon pace so doing something at a race at an effort level that is easier than you could actually do and significantly so and uh, one other mistake that i want to mention as well is to avoid training much differently than normal in race week when you're in kona in race week most athletes will arrive there uh, one week in advance or at least four or five days in advance it's easy to see a bunch of athletes out there doing uh, seemingly very hard training and you might get some fomo and start doing that yourself and uh, by by this don't get me wrong i'm not saying that uh, that you shouldn't train hard race week because some athletes do actually perform really well off of a relatively hard taper uh, that's that's perfectly fine and and that is that, that is the reality but the point here is that you should have your plan for training in race week before you get to the island and stick to that plan you already qualified so you've obviously done something right in the past in your training so there's probably no reason to do a dramatic overhaul of your race week plan from what has worked in the past and uh, yeah those really are all of the tips that i wanted to add to what was already mentioned so i hope that you enjoyed this episode as always you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com with the links to the past episodes of my guests frank in episode 231 uh, val in episode 290 and ryan in episode 221 by the way one one more thing just in case you missed the context frank is the coach of athletes such as jesper svensson sara svensk and uh, many many others um, he was also the coach of craig alexander back in the day ryan is the coach of uh, ben hoffman and sam long and uh, others and val is the coach of uh, Braden curry among others so that's just to give you some context and uh, an information of who these <laughs> these people that were on the podcast are as we didn't really have a formal introduction Uh, We'll be back next Monday. Not sure what's on store for that episode, but uh, hopefully it will be a good one.
now if you are looking for coaching services to help you perhaps get prepared to uh, to go to a world championship event or to qualify for a world championship event then i can highly recommend our coaching services on scientific triathlon uh, check out the details on scientifictriathlon.com or email me and we can we can discuss over email or over phone uh, but uh, i really believe that uh, we have uh, among the best coaching services out there uh, so i would recommend that you you consider us if you're looking for a coach for a goal like the world championship events big thanks to our sponsors precision hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com go and take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy for next race and to get 15% off your first order with the promo code that triathlon show one five and thank you to senate that you can find on senateswimtrainer.com use the swim trainer to improve your technique power and stamina and increase your swim stimulus frequency even when you can't go to the pool or open water you can get 20% off your order of the swim trainer with the promo code on svenateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.